Last week, we saw that after the arrest of Jesus, he had a hearing, a preliminary night hearing, with Annas, who was the unofficial high priest. And at the end of that questioning, he was led to Caiaphas, who is the official reigning high priest. And what happens after that is he has a trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish council of 70 elders presided over by the high priest who functions as a sort of chief justice of the court. That trial, that trial recorded in the other Gospels, John omits. So I'll summarize it very briefly. Jesus refuses to defend himself at that trial, so they put him under oath. He then declares that he's the Messiah and that they will see him coming in power and glory. And the Sanhedrin explodes in anger. They see their charge of blasphemy against him confirmed, and they send him to Pilate. Which brings us to the then at the beginning of our text. The then in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. So we'll make the three points that are on the back inside page of your bulletin. The charges, the interrogation, and the verdict. So first, the charges. The governor is Pilate. He's the Roman military governor of Judea. Pilate was appointed by the emperor, by Tiberius, around 26 AD. So he's been in this post maybe four years. He was known to be weak, right? to also to be tactless, to be vacillating, opportunistic. Pilate's not skilled or administratively gifted. This passage shows that. He married into the job because he happened to marry the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus, which is a good way to get a choice post in the Roman Empire. But it wasn't skill. It was his wife. He was anti-Semitic, and the Jews hated him. And we know that he could be violent, perhaps to compensate, but he could be brutal. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus refers to this incident where Pilate had taken the blood of some who were sacrificing at the temple and slaughtered the sacrificers, the worshipers, and mix their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. That's Pilate who did that. I mean, that's, yeah, Pilate. Now, normally, he would reside up the coast at Caesarea on the Mediterranean, but he's in his Jerusalem residence, as was the custom, just in case anything unruly happens at the Passover feast, in the same way that there's essentially a battalion of Roman troops at the Antonia Fortress outside the temple during the feast. So Pilate, the governor, comes down for the feast. He doesn't normally live in town. So by now we're told in the text, and John is careful to record this, right? Last, night, last week you had a night inquiry, a rushed, hurried night inquiry. Now we're told it was early morning. But the Roman... Public officials started very early, often to finish their day by the late morning. And things are moving very fast. We mentioned this last week, because if Jesus 
is to be crucified. He must be dead, and he must be down from the cross by sundown, since it's now Friday. And the Sabbath will start at sundown. And so the text tells us to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jewish leaders don't enter Pilate's palace. Entering a Gentile house was, for them, apparently considered a source of defilement, and they wanted to eat the Passover. They wanted to continue celebrating the feast. Now, John has an eye for irony, and there's another sharp bit of it here. You have people here who, in their concern to properly eat the Passover, are fulfilling God's purposes for Christ the Passover lamb, to be slain. There's a monumental kind of blindness and hypocrisy here that we've seen throughout the gospel. Right? They're concerned for outer ritual purity, but not for inner purity of heart. They're condemning an innocent man to death, but they are careful not to go into a Gentile's house while they do it. And besides this, this is another quality of people that have this religious cast of mind. There is no law in the Torah that says you can't enter a Gentile's house. But that's not enough for these kinds of folks, right? Their their thinking is, well, Gentiles will have unclean things in their house somewhere. And we're not supposed to touch unclean things and become defiled by unclean things. So why don't we make it a practice just not to enter Gentile houses? That's good, right? Why don't we be holier and just a little more wise than God himself is in the Torah? I mean, God doesn't forbid it, but we think it's a good idea. This is the essence of the religious mindset. It's constantly generating regulations and then keeps the regulations blind to the fact that they're having the opposite effect. At the very same time they're doing this, right, They are actually excluding themselves from the saving power of the true Passover sacrifice. That's why John gives us this detail. So they won't go into Pilate's palace, but they will stand out in his courtyard. And that's, you know, that sets up these, these scenes where Pilate goes out to them and then back into Jesus and then back out to them. It's as if Pilate's like weak and vacillating character is on display just in the way the narrative moves. And it dramatizes the choice that he faces, Pilate faces. Right? That mob or this this prisoner. And so we're told in verse 29 that Pilate came out to them. That means he comes out to the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin leaders, in in his own courtyard... And he finally opens up the judicial proceedings. He's addressing the prosecutors. And he asks them, what charges are you bringing against this man? He wants them to formally lodge the charge. And there's something clearly going on here behind the scenes because their answer is quite surly and sharp and aggressive. They say, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Now, it's important to remember here, there's no way this case is new to Pilate. There's no way that he doesn't know the basic facts of the case. He sent the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. 
So he knows what's happening. And the Jewish court out in the courtyard, they seem to think there was an agreement. You know, maybe an implied agreement, maybe an unspoken agreement that Pilate would simply confirm or rubber stamp their death penalty verdict. That's why they're put off by Pilate saying, what are the charges? They're like, what do you mean, what are the charges? If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. But what Pilate is doing when he asks them, what charges are you bringing against this man? He's opening a new trial. Right? He's just not assuming the validity of the Jewish court's verdict or proceedings, and that angers them. They don't like that, unless you get this response. So from where they're sitting, it's an open and shut case. He's a criminal, rubber stamp our verdict. And Pilate says this, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now, that seems like an innocent enough, I just don't want to deal with this case kind of comment, but it is not. Right? It is Pilate being his own arrogant, distasteful self here. He knows that the Jews are bringing a capital case, a death penalty case. He also knows that in 6 AD, Rome removed the Jews' ability to enact the death penalty. Right? that from about 25 years before this, it had become the exclusive prerogative of the Roman governor and the Roman governor alone to preside over or enact the death penalty in Judea. There was an exception if someone profaned the temple. If you look later in the book of Acts at Stephen's death, for example, that's an act of mob violence, right? That's not a sanctioned judicial procedure. That's an exception which proves the rule. And the rule is clear. Rome and Rome alone has jurisdiction in all death penalty cases. So Pilate is taking the opportunity to rub their noses in their being subjugated. They want the death penalty. He says, go judge them by your own law. He's saying, you're subject to Rome and you're subject to me. He knows it's a capital case. So he says, take them, judge them by your own law. And what do they say? You see it. They say, we have no right to execute anyone. They know what's going on. We can't judge them by our own law. And then John gives us this little insightful observation theologically in verse 32. He says, this took place to fulfill what Jesus said about how he was going to die. Now, at first, that's not obvious. But you can see here God's silent, overruling, providential hand ordering all these events. If Jesus had been given to the Jews for them to execute the death penalty, he would have been stoned like Stephen later was. But he's already said earlier in John's gospel that he's going to be lifted up from the earth. John chapter 12. He had predicted that he would die by crucifixion. And thus he had already predicted that he would die at the hands of the Roman state and not at the hands of the Jewish authorities. And that's that's the point of John's aside. He's telling us that as this little tussle between Pilate and the Sanhedrin goes on, that this is happening to fulfill what Jesus predicted about the mode of his death. And so there is here... 
this insight into God's sovereignty over the details of corrupt political courts. And we often think, how can God be sovereign over that? Well, he was sovereign over this. So that's the charge. We come to the interrogation, verse 33. One of the most interesting conversations, I think, perhaps in the history of literature, is Pilate in private with Jesus. It has, it's sparse. It's not a lot of material. It's engendered a whole bunch of speculation. But we'll try and look at it, see what we can learn. He goes back inside the palace. He summons Jesus. The first thing he says to, the, to him is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, there are more politics in play here. The Jews did not really care. Right? Think about that. They did not really care that Jesus was a political threat to Rome. They don't like Rome themselves. What drives the Jewish court is theology. Right? Jesus has made these blasphemous claims. He said he's the Messiah. He said he's divine. Right? In the nature of the case, if he's the Messiah, then he would be the king of Israel and also the king of the Jews. Now, think about this. The Jewish court knows that Pilate doesn't care about their theology. He doesn't care about the underlying Torah verses. People claiming to be a god or some sort of a son of a god was not unique in the Roman Empire. The, The emperors made claims like that. Pilate sees this sort of stuff every day. He's a guy. He thinks he's a god, whatever. He probably wouldn't care or understand. So what do they do? What what does the Jewish court do? They take the political aspect of Jesus' claim, and they present that to Pilate. Clearly, verse 33 indicates that the charge has to do with the political claim to be the king of the Jews. And that's Pilate's job, to be the king of the Jews. He's the king of Judea. And thus, it's this claim which Pilate could see as seditious, right? as denying Rome's political sovereignty over the Jews, that's the claim they come to Pilate with. Thus the question from Pilate to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He's not particularly concerned about whether he's the Messiah or whether he's God. So he's asking Jesus to plead here, guilty or not guilty. But, of course, the matter's not that simple, and Jesus now becomes the interrogator. He says to Pilate, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? I think Jesus could be reaching out to Pilate here. He wants to know this from Pilate, I think. Do you really care about this question, or are you just repeating the charge from the Jewish court? And Pilate's answer is pretty disappointing. He indicates that he's not particularly interested. Even in this political claim. The Jews thought he would be interested in this idea that Jesus is king of the Jews. But it turns out with Pilate, there's a whole bunch of nonchalant detachment. Am I a Jew? He says to Jesus. Am I a Jew? In other words, of course I learned it from them. I'm not a Jew. Where do you think I learned it from? The Torah? How would I know? I'm not a Jew. Your own people handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? 
Now, that's a very interesting question. What is it that you've done? See, Pilate has talked to Jesus enough to know that this is not your typical political anti-Roman revolutionary. He doesn't seem very threatening, which is probably why he doesn't even take this political charge all that seriously. But his sentiment seems to be this. Why would they care if you were an agitator against Rome? They're agitators against Rome. Why would they care? So there must be something to this charge. So what's going on here? What is it that you've done? And Jesus turns the conversation here famously, verse 36. He, he basically says, look, this is not about a little fiefdom, like a little first century Roman outpost in Judea. I'm not a pretender to some minor Roman province's throne. This is a different kind of kingdom from earthly political kingdoms. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Which probably, you know, would also confuse Pilate, could perhaps even calm him down. He might be thinking, oh, all right, so whatever. You've got some sort of kingdom from, some, from another realm. I'm worried about armies here. <laughs> right, I'm worried about armies, weapons, and violent overthrow. You have some kingdom that's floating around out there somewhere, Fine. Perhaps that's what Pilate hears. So Jesus is saying the source of my kingdom, its origin, even its destiny are not of this world. My kingdom comes from heaven, proclaims a heavenly gospel, leads men to heaven. It's a heavenly kingdom. But what does Jesus say in Luke 17? He says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. You're not going to be able to say, look, there it is. The kingdom of God is within you. If it were of this this world, if it were the kind of kingdom that Roman law recognizes, my disciples would fight to prevent my arrest. But it's not a kingdom of any kind of coercion or force or military or political turf battles. As the NIV puts it, my kingdom is from another place. Now, this is not to say at all that the kingdom is unconcerned with the world or that it won't impact the world. Quite the contrary. The kingdom will impact the world, and it will ultimately transfigure the current heavens and the earth. But its, its origin, its mode, its methods, right, its end, even its citizens transcend the world. Your citizenship is in heaven. So Pilate gets a little bit of light here. He says, oh, you, you are a king then. There is a kingdom. You're a king. Right? And again, it may be that Jesus' words calmed him down. But he at least gets this much. Okay, there's some sort of kingship involved. Jesus goes on to say that he came into the world to testify to the truth. He sees this is really finally the matter with Pilate. The question of will he submit to the truth. My kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Or as Paul would put it, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he's standing before Pilate and says, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth, truth that conducts one into the light. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. One can imagine how Pilate would hear those words. He could hear them as an implicit rebuke. You're not on the side of the truth. Therefore, you don't listen to me. 
or maybe an invitation. I should get on the side of the truth by listening to this prisoner. But it's clear at this point we're no longer talking about a Jewish kingdom. We're talking about something universal in range, cosmic in range, something as wide as the truth itself. Notice Jesus goes in one verse from my kingdom is not of this world to I came to testify to the truth. He actually shifts the conversation. What is truth, Pilate responds. This is Pilate at his most modern. What is truth? There's your truth and there's my truth. I'm a politician. The nature of truth is not really my business. I'm about power. What do I care about all this mystical, otherworldly stuff? And that he doesn't really care about the truth is shown by the fact that he doesn't even wait around for an answer. He asks Jesus himself, what is truth? And then he just leaves his presence. Walks away. What is truth? Walks out of the room. So finally, the verdict here. Now, Pilate recognizes that this is not a case that he really wants to prosecute. This is where the tragedy of Pilate starts and and his weaknesses really start to show. In that sense, we can say he understands something of Jesus' otherworldly claim. Whatever Jesus is doing, however Pilate understands it, he doesn't feel it as some sort of threat that he would prosecute at this point. He goes out to the Jews, and now there's a mob gathered there. Earlier, there was just the, the Jewish leaders. Now there's a mob, and he says to them, I find no basis for a charge against him. Right? That's basically, I see no threat to imperial authority here. Right? You know what he says in Luke's gospel? I find him not guilty. Now, we know he's torn about this. We know from the other gospels that his wife had a dream, remember, and came to Pilate and said, hey, you be careful. Don't harm this man. He should have stuck right here with his instincts. He should have exercised the authority he had. He could have simply walked out and said, I find him not guilty, which he basically did. But he's weak and he's vacillating and he wants to please this crowd. So he takes a gamble and he plays to the crowd. He figures this way, I can sort of imply Jesus is a criminal. I can please the crowd. I can let the people speak. They'll let Jesus go and my troubled conscience will be cleared and I won't have this mob angry with me. It's a classic failure of basic moral and political courage. They they don't even ask. He could have just said he's not guilty. Instead, he does this. It's your custom for me to release one prisoner at the time of Passover. It's your custom. Some sort of amnesty, prisoner amnesty, every year at Passover. This is not in the Torah, but it had become custom. You could understand it. The Passover is a liberation from bondage of Egypt. And so there might grow an amnesty sort of custom. And so Pilate asked the crowd, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? He probably thinks they're going to say yes. And then he'll be done with the matter and he won't have to prosecute Jesus. Instead, the crowd opts for Barabbas. Who, in fact, was a robber and an insurrectionist and had committed murder in an uprising. He actually is a real short-term political threat to Rome. 
And he's a hero to the Rome-hating crowd. But the custom, if you look at the text, the custom appears to be something that has to be honored. So he releases him. He capitulates to the crowd's wishes. And judicially speaking, he seals Jesus' fate as the unreleased criminal. It's really remarkable what happens here. I know you all know the story. But the crowd gets two things. Right? They get a real anti-Roman revolutionary freed. And they get the blasphemy charge against Jesus upheld so they can execute him. Pilate gets nothing. So I want to conclude. I think there's a couple things for us to see here. One, of course, is this ironic overruling providence of God. The Lord is, among other things, a great storyteller, even in this darkest of hours. Right? There's a kind of grand substitution. We saw it last week uh, where the text was, was putting Jesus' confession up against Peter's confession. Jesus substitutes for the Peter in all of us. Well, there's another kind of substitution here. They release Barabbas. He's he's convicted of sedition, which is the same charge they brought against Jesus. But this choice of the crowd, enabled by, by Pilate's cowardice, allows Jesus to become the amnesty Passover sacrifice. Not only for the people, but for the world. So there's a deep, unfathomable mind of providential skill that's ordering this. It allows him to die as predicted, lifted up on a cross, not stoned, but lifted up on a cross, which means accursed, hanging from a tree, according to the Jews' very law. It's quite remarkable, I think, that a combination of Pilate's, um, you know, political ambition and weakness and the Jewish angry mob's wish, that fulfills your and mine and the human race's deepest needs. This is the way God beautifully and surprisingly writes the story. It's a story of the mercy and love of God reigning in the midst of human bloodlust and deceit. God traces it. And it's also the story of a new kind of kingship, right? There's a king who's now about to ascend by Pilate's orders to the chariot throne of the cross. And it's the story of a new kind of kingdom from another place, testifying to the truth, sometimes the ugly truth, of the world's darkness. Remember, Pilate said, am I a Jew? You know what? Turns out he was with the Jews and with Barabbas and with the world at large against this prisoner, right? Against this amnesty sacrifice in his own palace. So it's this substitution then, Barabbas for Jesus, that allows Jesus to be your substitute. In the midst of these human choices, God has chosen. And his choice prevails. Do you know what 
Peter says in the book of Acts, he says that Jesus was delivered up and crucified according to the predetermined plan of God. And then he says, and you put him to death by the hands of wicked men. Meaning God's sovereignty does nothing to your freedom or your culpability. But nevertheless, it reigns in the midst of your human choices. Right? God, having in this text overruled our choice, still calls us to responsible choices. Right? There's a kind of urgent decision, Barabbas or Christ, that people face. Of this worldly political kingdom and methods or a kingdom not of this world. The Jewish nationalist dream or a global universal Catholic kingdom of the truth. Blind religious zeal or the Passover lamb of God. Pilate wanted a foot in each camp. And you know what he ended up with? He ended up being enshrined in the creed as the one under whom Jesus was crucified. He gets that one infamous line, crucified under Pontius Pilate. For his cowardice. Finally, I want us to see the mercy of God in this text. It might at first appear that the mercy of God is not visible here, but it is visible. It's visible in three forms, I think. The mercy of God for the pilot in us. Right? For our cowardly, indecisive, pragmatic weakness is on display in the text. Just like everybody's kind of a Peter... Everybody's got some pilot in them. Everybody's trying to please everybody. There's also the mercy of God for the Jewish leader in us. Right? For our religious smugness. For obsession with our own laws and our own purity and our own cleanness. For our self-confidence and our blindness and our rigidity. Right? For all of our endless religious self-justifications. There's mercy for that too, on display here because the one who's going to be crucified is crucified for the mob outside. Right? And one last sign of God's mercy. There's mercy for the mob mentality. It's bloodlust and it's frenzy feeding off the spectacle. Right? It's need for a scapegoat. You know what the mob reveals? It reveals that deeply entrenched tendency to violence in our hearts. There's mercy for that here. There's mercy for the pilot in us. There's mercy for the religious hypocrite in us. And there's mercy for the bloodthirsty mob in us. God has chosen Christ over and against the human choices for Barabbas. Choose now then, choose again this day, whom you will serve. Amen. Amen.